Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another weekly edition of The Political Party. Um, I shouldn't sound so surprised because I knew it was coming, but... um, I think the decision to, to do this weekly already has been one of the best decisions I've ever made. It's brilliant getting to getting to prepare for an interview every week. And there are different interviews to the monthly ones. Obviously, the monthly ones are the main thrust of the show. Uh, and next week, I'll be interviewing James Cleverly, the new deputy chair of the Tory party, live on stage at the other palace. But the weekly ones have their own little dynamic. I mean, I'm only two in, obviously, so perhaps I'm extrapolating too much from this. But when you do it in front of an audience, there's a different atmosphere to when you just do it effectively in a radio studio. But th- that has pros and cons as well. So uh, it's more intimate, which means perhaps people confide more. I always thought people could find more in front of an audience, but um, uh, that remains to be seen. There were only two in. But it's already just brilliant getting to do this stuff every week because not only are you having great political discussions with some of the best minds around... You're also finding out about an interesting individual and doing your research on them and understanding what they bring to politics and what their uh, perspectives are and their experiences, crucially. So it's just an absolute thrill. I almost feel like I'm in a box set. (laughs) I'm watching a box set, even though I'm making it myself. It's just a thrill. This week's guest is the fantastic Owen Bennett, uh, the deputy political editor of Huffington Post. Um depending on how you take your media. Uh, Huffington Post are, are either an established uh, and reputable online outlet, or they're a very new thing that you, you might be slightly uh, intimidated by if you only get your news by print. They're superb, they're highly reputable, uh, and are effectively a global brand, and Owen is at the forefront of their political coverage here. One of the great things about taking the show weekly and making it interactive has been the emails I've been able to get. You can email the show now. Political Party Podcast at gmail.com. That's Political Party Podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me as well at Matt Ford. The response to the Theo Bertram show has been wonderful. Obviously, taking it weekly was a slightly different thing. Um, it's different in tone, it's slightly different in style. And I really hoped that people would like it. Judging by the response I've had on Twitter and email, people loved it. I mean, Theo was exceptional. And don't forget, you can follow him on Twitter as well, at Theo Bertram. I had so many emails from people. It's been great. Um, three emails stuck out. Uh, one from Sicely Dudley. He said, I love the podcast. Really enjoyable and a great guest. I listened from the rooftop of my hostel in Medellin, Colombia. I'm possibly the only Blairite for hundreds of kilometres. Well, that would equally be true, perhaps, precisely in Britain. Just one thing. I've had some trouble with Theo's volume. I couldn't hear him when he trailed off, but if you turn up the volume, it's too loud when he speaks louder. Could you remind guests to be aware of that problem? Can't wait for the next episode, precisely. Uh, I did brief our, our guest. It is difficult sometimes when you're in the middle of an interview to want to tell someone maybe to lean in to a microphone or not. And one of the constant bugbears I know from reading some of the iTunes comments has been sound levels on this podcast for years. Um, I think that's often to do with me being a heavy breather, which a lot of people have picked up on. (laughs) That's a problem I've had since childhood. I'm asthmatic, and I used to get told off for heavy breathing in class, which makes it sound like there was something else going on. I guarantee it wasn't. I'm aware that I perhaps sit too close to the microphone, so that is something I'm trying to work on. Um... Matthew Grant said, I loved it. The only bit I'm not sure on is the jingle during the intro. Quite annoying. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted, Matthew, that that's the only thing that, um, that annoyed you about the show. I think the jingle adds a little bit, so I'm going to stick with it for a bit. But do keep in touch. Um, let me know if it's grown on you. Emma in Derby uh, sent a number of suggestions. Uh, the first one was, why not have a theme tune, uh, perhaps sung by MP4? Um, the theme tune could have intentionally terrible lyrics. So she's obviously familiar with their work. 
uh, says that there's a different guest every week. Who's up next for us to meet? Grab a chair and something hearty. Let's all have a political party. I mean, I have to say, I thought that was a bad idea until I read it out, and it's actually quite grown on me. Um, the second suggestion that Emma had was to have a discussion one week centred around something she often thinks about. Which living political figures have a public image or reputation so bad that even a stint on Strictly Come Dancing could not repair it? An interesting thought. It would be an idea to perhaps have a recurring question, so that's something I'll, I'll think about. Uh, and then a third suggestion, which I'm going to rule out immediately, was to start calling the listeners the PPers, with no explanation why, and see if anyone notices or calls you out on Twitter. I think everyone noticed, and I think everyone would rightly call me out on it. Um, Emma says she's from the beautiful city of Derby. We have a five guys now, so we're on our way up. Definite sign of progress wherever you live, I think, to have a, to have a burger joint, even if it's Derby. Uh, thank you for all your wonderful emails. I had so many. Uh, they were the three that stood out, um, perhaps for their suggestions. Do email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And you can tweet me as well, at Matt Ford. Today's guest is Owen Bennett. He's the deputy political editor of Huffington Post. He is um, a rising star in the world of political journalism, and he's risen quite fast. He is someone who's put himself in harm's way a number of times. We talk about this. The, the interview is, is wide-ranging. One of the things I've always wanted to ask a lobby journalist is what is the distinction between the Westminster Press Gallery that sit up there in the House of Commons and the lobby itself? Now, if you're not familiar with the lobby, these are the people who get the briefings from Downing Street. It, it's a slightly more select membership. They get access to things that other journalists don't get. And even though we talk about lobbying all the time, and lobbying takes its name from central lobby in Parliament, where the public could literally come and meet their politicians in the lobby and therefore put their case to them on whatever the matters uh, concerning them were, i.e. lobby them. So that's where the phrase comes from. But the, the journalistic lobby is something we hear about a lot, and I wanted to understand it more. Where does it meet? What's it like? What are the dynamics of it? That is something we discussed about Owen, as well as his own rise into political journalism and the threat to new journalism, not just the threat to print, which he has huge experience in, but new online journalism, things like The Canary and Guido and Squawk Box, and, all the, and they're very different websites, as, as we talk about in the, in the show. But this explosion now in, in online political comment and journalism, and that's something that he makes a distinction he also followed UKIP for a long time, and he's got some great stories. He's a fantastic bloke, Owen, and just with Theo, the, eye of fl the hour flies by, and the stuff we get from inside the world of political journalism, it's the first political journalist we've had on air, is brilliant. I couldn't believe it when we got to, effectively, the hour mark, because it just, again, like with Theo, taking me into a completely different world. So do enjoy the fantastic Owen Bennett. Owen, welcome to the political party. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you here. Good. You are, um, well, firstly, yeah. one thing I really, I've always wanted to ask you about is, is being a lobby journalist. Mm. So go back through your career in a second. But there is the, there is the, <laughs> there's the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Yes. Which is where the journalists sit. Yes. And they are journalists that have to be accredited and recognised by Parliament. And you or your employer pays a set amount to be able to sit in the gallery not behind glass and report on parliamentary proceedings. Yeah. Then, from that group, is also the lobby, which is a select group which gets to go to specific briefings. Um, now, how does that work in terms of your employer's decision to decide whether you should be just a member of the press gallery or a member of the lobby as well? I think it's down to the political editors, and I'm pretty sure that most people who are in the press gallery are in the lobby with the exception of the sketch writers, so the people who write all your funny, you know, wasn't David Davis mad today pieces, they don't get to go to the lobby because I think it would be seen as a little bit strange if they're in there taking the mick out of the <laughs> Prime Minister's official spokesman. Um, so it's sort of, I think most people who are in there, uh, in the press gallery, are in the lobby as well. The lobby's changed a lot because it used to be you didn't even talk about the lobby. It That's used right. to be you didn't even know it existed. No one was ever told when these lobby briefings were. Something used to be in 10 Downing Street. I hear stories of back in the days of Thatcher when her press person would sort of sit there, put his feet on the table and just call all the Prime Minister's names under the sun. Yeah, Bernard Ingham. Exactly, Bernard Ingham, him with the eyebrows. Yeah. Whereas now, it is a lot more formal. We have it uh, sort of twice a day. We have these briefings. There's a certain room, which is uh, the room of requirement, and then we've seen Harry Potter, which is sort of tucked away somewhere in, in the House of Commons, which you... 
you can only find if you're shown where it is. You you could not stumble across this room otherwise. Uh, and that's where you get the briefings from. So when you say you get the briefings, do they come in and physically brief you? Yeah. The Prime Minister's official spokesman. Sorry, I nodded then. I forgot his audio. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, they come in and they, and they brief you and they set out the diary of what's going on in the week, which some of it you can report, some of it you can't report today to one in the week. I hope I'm not going to make too many secrets here. <laughs> no, this is and, great. Uh, no. And then, uh, and then you, ask, you, ask, you ask them questions about the topics of the day. It's a little bit like a mini PMQs, actually, because the, the Prime Minister's official spokesperson sits there with a big file in front of them, all the tabs, and you say, you know, well, what about Grillion? And they flick to the relevant bit and they read out the selected parts of it. Um, and you sort of try and catch them out a little bit. It does descend quite often into sort of willy-waving and who can ask the most obnoxious or tedious question, especially when I'm there anyway. And is there a time limit on how long those briefings will no, last? No, they can go on... Sometimes they've gone on for over 40 seconds. Um, <laughs> they, they can go on They can go on for an hour, an hour and a half. They're very rare. Most last about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. But if there's a really big issue, really big deal, they can go on for a long time. And how often are they? You get them twice a day. Twice a day? Yeah. So the morning one's normally the longest one because... The, they set out the business of the government for the day, what the Prime Minister's doing, what the different ministers are doing. So you sort of quiz them on that. And then um, you ask questions about the topics that have usually been in the news that morning. And then by the time you get to the one in the afternoon, most things have been moved on. So you're just trying to get a little bit of, little bit of reaction and comments. And how much of your job is just spending time in those briefings? Or have you got to the point now where you think, I'm not going to go every day? There's always someone from our organisation every day, as it was with most, uh, most media outlets. I mean, there's a sort of question about how much use they are, <laughs> because they used to be completely off the record, but now they can be attributed. Now everyone records it. You can attribute it to the prime minister's official spokesman. So you don't actually get a lot of steer out of there. But sometimes they come in. We we learnt, for example, and that sounds silly, but we learnt the day that Article 50 was going to be triggered triggered through a, a briefing. So you go along and say, right, we've got a bit of news for you. So they're the the quite useful ones, and it's good to get comments on stuff like with Carillion. If the public could have seen the press briefing that day, even though we didn't get a big story out of it, we really dr drilled down. When did they know about the profit warnings? Why would they keep getting given contracts? Why were you giving them not just joint venture contracts, but you know all that kind of stuff? So you you get you get a lot of a feel of where the government is on certain things. And what's the format of them then? Do you all sit facing one seat that yeah. the prime minister's officials works and yeah. comes in themselves and they host the meeting? Yeah. So the one in the morning, the prime minister's the prime minister's official spokesman sits down and hosts it, and he has a team from number 10 with him who will sort of furiously take notes as well. Um, and to be fair, if you ask him a question he doesn't know, he will say, I'll get, I'll get back to you on that, and he, and he does. Yeah. The one in the afternoon, even though it's in the same room, is technically hosted by the lobby chairman. Okay. Because um, it used to be that we would, the, the lobby pack would go over to Downing Street for the briefing, but then there was a deal done, I'm not sure when, that they would just come over to Parliament, so we sort of thank you for coming over, and it's hosted by the, the lobby chairman instead. And in terms of the, the composition of the lobby, before it, th there was a real mystique to it, as you said, um, because a lot of it was off the record, so it was a secretive club. Now we can look up the members of the lobby online. It's very easy to find. The lobby has grown, obviously, because of the different news outlets we have now, websites. I mean, you've got people like Evolve Politics in there and, and other people who self-identify. They're not in there they yet. Not, they're they're not in the, the, I think they're, they're in the gallery. I think they're get, yeah, I think they're getting a pass, or maybe they've got one. I've not seen them around yet. We had a spare desk next to where I sit, and I really wanted the canary to come and sit there, because I thought it would be absolutely brilliant. And are they, have they got a lobby pass yet? I don't think so. I think they've applied. But obviously you're working for Huffington Post, which is yeah. online. This isn't print. Yeah. Do you, does that affect your relationship with print journalists? or? No, not really, because um, I think there is still a degree of sort of... Uh, we're looking down their nose at sort of online-only outlets. We're seen as not quite the established, uh, you know, not quite, not quite right by some people and by MPs as well. A lot of MPs, you know, don't really want to speak. You don't don't see the value in speaking to a an online-only outlet because you don't then have the front page, which is still a really powerful thing in British journalism. Is the front page of a newspaper, and, you know, which you see in petrol forecourts. You yeah. don't have that with a website. No, but do you? The MPs that don't understand the value of online journalism is that broadly an age thing or not? Uh, yeah, I think I think it is. I think I think that is. I think it is an age thing. Uh, it's probably more Tories than Labour. Uh, that's not to say that there are some Labour MPs who who don't quite get it. Um, but it's more it's more Tories than Labour. You, you you can tell when you talk to them that you know the name HuffPost isn't a name that they recognise. It's not something they read. Not something they're 
people they know read, therefore they don't see the value in talking to it. But if I was to say I'm from the Times or the Telegraph, or even when I was at the Daily Express, then you would, it would the door would open. So when you're first entering the lobby as a, as a young, ambitious journalist, yeah. excited about being in Parliament, no doubt, thrilled to report the the you know the the daily goings on of British politics from the, from the highest level. One of the things that people say about journalists is you, you need your network of contacts. How do you go about building up a, a network of people in various parties that will give you secrets? I mean, that's the, the sort of $64,000 question. I mean, the, the so I first joined the lobby for the Daily Express, and writing for the Daily Express was really easy because you know what your readers <laughs> want to read about, right? They want to read about the EU and migration. Now, whether you agree and with... the weather. And the weather, right? And whether you agree with that or not, that's so. All I had to do, not all I had to do, but I just find the, the twenty most Eurosceptic MPs. Yeah, uh, and this was twenty fourteen when I joined. Um, so so the, you could uh, just done well in the, Euro, the, yeah, lo- the, the, the European the, elections. Yeah, European elections, and there was the press. And Cameron had already committed to the referendum. That's right. And this was just before uh, Douglas Carswell had defected. So there was still a lot of pressure on would we get the referendum and what was the deal going to be, all this kind of stuff. Um, so you just you just focus on one area. So I. It naturally was the EU, so I built up a lot of contacts through that, um, and that's what uh, I think that a lot of journalists do is they pick one or two topic areas. If you go in and say oh, I'm going to get every MP's phone number, it's just not going to happen. But if you pick certain topics and you become known for being trusted in that, and that sort of leads on to other things as well. But do you effectively cold call them? Do you get in touch and say, you know, hello, Mr. Cash, I'm Owen, I'm from the Express. Can we have a chat about Brexit? Yeah, and you and just yeah. as simple as that. Simple as that. Or can we can we meet for a coffee? Um, and then you just sort of nod and agree with everything they say, and they, you make sure you give them the impression that you agree with yeah. everything they've said, and you are a true believer in whatever <laughs> cause it is. Because I went from the Express to the Mirror, so it's exactly the same thing with the Mirror. You know, replace the EU with the NHS, you replace Farage worship for at the time Miliband worship, and yeah. it's the same skills, just yeah. different targets. But then, how easy is it to get them to confide in you? I mean, it's not hard to get politicians to talk about what they think, you know, and a lot of them will uh, will diverge highly private things perhaps on a first meeting. But would you ever deal with politicians who'd say, look, I'll tell you this, but you can't print it? Yeah, and and, and you don't. You you earn their trust. Yeah. You, you Even if sometimes they say something to you and they don't say to you, oh, this is off the record, but you think, mm, if I was to run this, run that comment... You know, you'd never talk to me again. Or what I can do is make you know that I'm not going to run this. So then they trust you. Yes. You know, oh, what? Look, you said that, but oh, God, let's just pretend you didn't say. It. Let's move on. And then they get. And then they trust you. And then they, they. That's how you build up, build up the relationship with them. And do they ever say to you, Owen, I've got some gossip and I want you to run it. I'm going to leak this to you, and you can have it as an exclusive. Yeah, I've had that a few times. I've had people tell me. I've had MPs tell me things which I didn't believe, which subsequently turned out to be true. Any about- that you can remember. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the best way of phrasing it so that it doesn't get me sued. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> antics, antics involving Keith Vaz. Right, okay. Put it like that. Okay. I had already heard rumours of that nature. Yeah. But there was no possible way that I could stand that up. I'm not an undercover reporter. No. I didn't have the tools at my ha- discretion to... So I was unable to do anything about like, like information. And to be honest with you, I didn't really believe it at the time, and I, and I wasn't inclined to do anything with it either because it's not the kind of journalism that I do. Yeah. But, yeah, so you hear things like that. You do have to exercise your judgment. Yeah. How much... In terms of your membership of the lobby, obviously, there's... How much does it cost? Oh, do you know I don't know? I don't deal with money. <laughs> you made it sound like that was just a general lie for just all. Just in general. Oh, I, just I mean, mainly because I haven't got any. Yeah. But, no, uh, yeah, the books don't sell that well. Uh... So, no, I don't know how much it costs. I think the, the, the big boys take care of that. But do you then have to sign any sort of, not non-disclosure agreement, but is there any, you know, rules that you oh, have to buy? Oh, there's so by? many unwritten rules, um, which no one ever tells you until you break them, which is a bit <laughs> much. Where are you supposed to sit in the galleries? There's a hierarchy of where you're supposed to sit when you watch the big the PMQs and the budgets and all of that. And no one ever tells you where you, you can and can't sit until someone tells you they're in the wrong seat. It's like a borstal. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've often been dragged into the toilets having a head flush down Sno- there by... Snookable in by, the sun. Yeah, by Tom Newton Dunn of the sun. <laughs> so there is all that kind of stuff. Um, so where do they, So where's the prime seat then? Front row in the middle? Yeah, front row in the, the middle. Behind the clock? Yeah, behind the clock. And then I sit the furthest round to the right... 
because you got to stay on brand as you, as I <laughs> as I can, so I can see I can see into the whites of Jeremy Corbyn's eyes, and I quite often so I'm I'm overlooking I'm so I'm above the Conservatives. Yeah. So I see the back of Theresa May's head, and I can see all the front benches, and I remember the the one MP who was always catching my eye. And sort of flicking his eyebrows to the sky in sort of despair what was going on was Andy Burnham. Yeah. I was forever catching Andy Burnham's eye at, during PMQs and he would be trying not to laugh at something which had gone on. It's fascinating when you're in there, because I've been in a number of times in the public gallery before the glass mm. screen, where you were, you really felt like you were in there. It's probably arguably one of the best views because you get to see both sides yeah. up there. Yeah. Um, with the glass screen, it is slightly different, but you're still in there. If you can get onto the visitors' gallery on mm. the side, then, then you the noise... Television does no justice to how persistently rowdy it is, particularly at Prime Minister's questions. I didn't realise until I went in there just how much Ed Balls was heckling constantly George Osborne and David. It was it went on for twenty minutes nonstop. Yeah. Where's the growth? Where's the growth, though, Dave? Where's the growth? Growth's gone down. Where's growth's gone down, isn't it, Dave? Dave, Dave's growth's gone down. What's the talking about there? Where's the funding? Where's the... Dave, I mean, I don't know how we didn't tell him just to shut up. Yeah, because it well, was... did occasionally. Oh, I, you know, I don't blame him. I don't look because it was just incessant. I remember him calling him a muttering idiot. Yeah, like, a muttering idiot. He just and he he just had the volume where it was just on the cusp of Cameron's hearing. Yeah, it almost wasn't loud enough to block out. It was just it was just like a little stone in the shoe and yeah. it just <laughs> get Cameron all the time. But you're so close to it. If you're sat, where you're sat, you're you're effectively just above the back row. Yeah. You yeah, are yeah. right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see them. You I've, I've been there and had MPs wave at me and I haven't been yeah. sure whether I'm allowed to wave back or not. I don't know. I I, I get the look sometimes, yeah. Uh, so Andy Burnham was one. There was a period and I don't know why. I used to just tweet whatever Liz Kendall was doing in PMQ. <laughs> I used to do Liz Kendall watch. Uh and it wasn't sinister, but it was no, just—it just was bit. at the time when she just lost horrifically in the leadership election. So it was just quite funny watching her in PMQs because she used to come along and sit there right in my eye line, and I'll tweet Liz Kendall, watch you know what she, how she was reacting to Corbyn's questions, <laughs> and then I she stopped coming to PMQs for some reason, and then uh, and then so I changed it to Wedge Streeting Watch, and I used to call in the future former Shadow Education Secretary <laughs> Wedge Streeting. I don't think you like that. Uh, no. So I stopped kind of doing that after that. Trolling. Yeah, but like really visibly, so they could see me doing it. Oh, so they're following it on their they, handset. They were seeing, they, they were getting, and they were looking up and seeing me doing it. You've got some guts, mate. Yeah, I was just a bit annoying, really, and I was just a bit bored because of whatever was going on. Because it's not that exciting, is it, Corbyn versus May? No. Uh, Corbyn versus Cameron was all right. So I used to just yeah, just tweet what one MP was doing for half an hour. It's it's a novel approach to journalism. <laughs> Had you always wanted to be a political journalist? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think um, I did a degree in politics. Yeah, I, absolutely. I don't think. Yeah, without a question. And when you're studying for a degree in politics, was it that you always wanted to be a political journalist? Was there any part of you that thought you would go into politics instead? You wanted to be a politician? Uh, no. Oh, is that a lie? That might be a lie. And then I did a bit of work for an MP while I was at uni. Which one? Uh, I did a bit of work for Vernon Coker. No way! Yeah. In Gedling! In Gedling. Now, I want to say, that's not because I'm a Labour supporter, yeah. but it's generally because he came in, or I think a lecturer said, there's a job going with an MP if anyone wants it, like a day a week. I needed the money, and I thought it would be a good experience. And I went along and worked for him, and he was a minister at the time in the Home Office. Yes, he was. He under John Reid. He was under John Reid. And um, I just saw how hard he worked. Yeah, he's amazing. I, I, I just saw the diary, and it was like the only time he had free was a Sunday afternoon. Um, and I think Vernon is, is typical. I mean, he has his, his, as you know, his constituency in Gedling was always Tory until '97, then it went Labour. That's right. He had a he has a huge personal vote. All MPs say that, but he does. You walk yeah. around a constituency because he used to be a, a school teacher there, That's so right. he knew the kids hanging around the bus shelter to the old women's shop in Asda. Everyone knew Vernon's name, and there was a lot of. I don't vote Labour, but I vote for Vernon. Yeah. So he did work hard, but I think all MPs, majority of MPs, do work hard. And I just saw how hard they had to work, and I just thought, oh, I'm not sure I could. I can't believe I didn't that. know that you worked for Vernon. Yeah, I worked for Vernon. Yeah. Because I worked for Paddy Tipping, who was the neighbour MP, yeah. the neighbouring MP in Sherwood. And what's fascinating about Vernon, you're absolutely right. He's a he would be a great study for sophologists and, and pollsters because safer seats around him went. In 2005 and in 2010, Sherwood is still conservative mm. now. We didn't get it back. Mansfield went conservative this, you know, yeah, in, uh, the last election. Yeah. So there's Vernon has managed in, in a marginal seat to hold on, 
And he is a very hard-working man. Mm. A very no- I mean, he's one of those people you think he should have had a far more prominent role, certainly in the last seven years of, of Labour's life. He is straight-talking, yeah. identifiably working-class made good, strong, solid, likeable, you know, a safe pair of hands. I mean, I, the thing about Vernon was that you know, he, he he tells his story himself, that he, he went to a grammar school and his brother went to a secondary modern, so he had the experience mm. of this separation of education at a young age, and he saw how that what it did to his family, so that's why he was he was against that kind of stuff. He's worked in the public sector, and he doesn't sound like the... He doesn't sound like a new Labour MP. He yeah, talks yeah. like a bit of a geezer, right? From yeah, London. Sure, big yeah, right, yeah. yeah, big fan. Um, and I always thought that it was a real mistake that Ed Miliband didn't make more of him yeah, yeah. during the time when... Because when Miliband was in charge, there was even... It's even more now, bizarrely, seen as the North London Metropolitan Elite, even though it is more now, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was Seymour under Ed Miliband, yeah, bizarrely. Yeah. Um, and I thought Vernon should have been out there on the TV screens a lot more and should have been talking to members a lot more. But unfortunately for Vernon, uh, this is really niche analysis Yeah, here but people. people should Google him. Google Look him up on YouTube. The two things that Vernon knows a lot about is Northern Ireland and defence, and they're two things which the Labour Party never, ever, ever talk about, campaign about. So he really is he's, he's completely, from a past political term, his knowledge is just not used. But if you want to go and watch his stuff on defence, he is absolutely fantastic on it. He's, he's got a real sort of, uh, you know, talks like that Danny Owen, you know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, we need to sort it out. You can't have people mucking about. But it's almost a bit, it's almost a bit more like... He's a little bit more Bob Hoskins, almost. I remember seeing him when he was a Home Office Minister. It must have been the World Cup in 2006. And um, he was at, he'd was he gone out to Germany with like British police who were basically helping police a piazza full of drunk England fans in these fountains. Were you, were in, you the in the fountain? Is that when you saw him? <laughs> no, I, was watching, I was watching him on telly in the office and he gave this great interview where he said... Uh, no, no, you know, the England sports are having a great time out here. You know, obviously the vast majority are very peaceful and, you know, they're having a great time. But make no mistake, people stop mucking about. <laughs> so, oh, this, is, this is exactly what politics should yeah, be, yeah, yeah. a straight-talking bloke, talking language and meaning it. Yeah, and also the fact that his name's Vernon Coker and he was Minister for Drugs at one point as well. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a, he's a fascinating individual, but working for him perhaps put you off wanting to be a politician or work in politics and, and put you more towards journalism. Yeah, and, and I was never really uh, particularly partisan in the sense... I was never... I look, I, you know, I can... In the same way that you do, Matt, you have a go at everyone, I'm quite happy to have a go at everyone as well. Yeah. You know, with my journal, I don't particularly fall passionately one way or the other. Um, so, yeah, so I just I just realised that, that being in politics wasn't really for me. And, and also, I think you've got to be... If you want to get anywhere in politics, you've got to be quite deferential, I think, if you want to climb up and really More get somewhere in the party. And I just wasn't... I've kind of got too much of a chip on my shoulder almost to do that. More so than you do in journalism, do you think? Yeah, because I think in journalism, journalism is actually, bizarrely, very meritocratic. In the sense, if you can produce the work, yeah, it doesn't really matter anything else. Um and I feel like in politics, it's not just about the work you do, it's how you do it and who you annoy along the way and who you... Do, do you know what I mean? There's, all, there's so many other things you've got to think of and I just... I couldn't be doing all of that. In a way, you've got the ideal role because you're politically interested, you're fair to describe you as an obsessive, and you get to be right at the heart of it all without having to have the stress yeah, of exactly. the yeah, decisions yeah, yeah. on your shoulders. Exactly. You so I, can, I can be at these... I mean, the past few years in particular, I mean, what a time from to be a political reporter because it's just been mad. Um, so I get to be this kind of front seat of history role, but I also get to go home and not have to think about any of the consequences <laughs> of it as well. So it's quite a nice position, really. In terms of the, the events that you've witnessed or been present at, what are the ones that will stay with you, do you think? Um, I think, because I did a lot of UKIP reporting, I think it's it's easy now, and I think a lot of people wish that UKIP weren't that big a thing. Mm. But reporting on Farage in the lead-up to the 2015 election was was mad. <laughs> because you had a guy who... The way of campaigning was going to a pub at 12 o'clock <laughs> and getting beers in. And that was his. That was him campaigning. Yeah. That wasn't him having a break from campaigning. <laughs> that was part of it. So it was, that was quite a weird sort of time to be around. And having reported on him from 2013, seeing the media pack suddenly come along so these events that I was going to which I was the only reporter at to suddenly 
Laura Kunzberg's there, Nick Robinson's there, everyone's there, and you go, wow, this is like it's it is like the band that you saw down the Dog and Duck is now playing Wembley Arena. Yeah, I didn't feel like possessive of them. I was <laughs> like, fine, thank God, other people are here, right? Yeah. So that that whole that period was was quite mad. You wrote a book about it following Farage. Yeah. Did he read it? Uh, I don't think so. He told me he did. Uh, I don't know if he can read. <laughs> first of all. I think he probably got someone to read it and just say, is there anything we can sue him over? And they went, no. And he went, all right, and whatever. What was your relationship with him like? Passionate. Uh, <laughs> gentle. Um, it was, I think, it's strange with Nigel Farage because personally, we always got on fine. Yeah. He knew that I wasn't a UKIP supporter, but he also, and even when I went from the Express to the Mirror, he still knew that I always gave them a fair, a fair write up, and I always did be UKIP. I always gave them a fair write up because even though a lot of what they said wasn't my politics, I was always thinking, who it is not my place to not report on this party. Yeah, yeah. If people want to read about this party and make their own minds up, that's fine. But I'm not going to spin what they say. And I think a lot of reporting of UKIP at the time, the reason why they did so well, because people were seizing on things which stupid little UKIP councillors did yeah. or making stuff up. There's plenty that UKIP were doing which you could attack them on legitimately. And people were sort of playing the man, not the ball enough. Yes. And that completely fed into the UKIP narrative of, of the establishment don't like us. And I think Farage recognised I never, ever did that with Nigel yeah. Farage. So it's come out now recently that he had an affair with... Is Annabelle Fuller, who's, who's admitted all this, by the way. And that's a story which I'd known about for years, but I never looked into I never, it's, it's nothing to do with me. That's not the kind of journalist I want to be. And I think so he kind of respected that I gave him that kind of um, coverage. In a way, do you think you lucked out covering UKIP at that time? Because you weren't having to go to the seminars and the plenaries in Millbank and, and you know, Great Smith Street or wherever. You weren't having to go to the same boring stage managed stuff. You were going to pubs. You were going to events that were actually quite enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, I def- definitely did it. <clears throat> it definitely fell at the right time. The first time I, I covered Farage, I was working as a local reporter at the Hertfordshire Mercury newspaper, and he came down to a town called Hoddesdon. And he, um, this was a year before they won the European parliamentary elections, and he turned up. He was supposed to turn up in a mini, in a double decker bus, but it broke down. Uh, so we had turned up in a taxi, but there's also this like weird minibus that was painted like UKIP purple which looked like this giant like blueberry was coming down the road and there was like five people there with balloons and he gave this speech because local elections about how there was too many translators in local government and wind farms don't work and he was just like what is this right <laughs> and like it was just really and I think Thatcher just died and they're really like sad about it and it was just like and he was going around like the butchers and saying would you vote for me he was Oh yeah, you're yeah, you're a geezer, Nigel. You're an absolute. And everyone I spoke to was going to vote UKIP in this town. So I rang up leader of the Tory council. I was like, "Mate, you are absolutely screwed." And then Hoddesdon, like the Tories won, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you could not win at all. But that was the first time I met him. And then I'm, I said to him, "I'm just going to work for Daily Express actually in a few weeks." I didn't see him again until six months later. And he said, "Oh, Owen, how's it going at the Daily Express?" And he remembered me. Wow. And you know when you just like, oh, that's that's a good skill to have if you're Nigel Farage that you remember the people so you sort of go oh right Nigel Farage remember me you know it's a weird, it's weird talking about a man like Nigel Farage like this because it sounds like I'm talking about Noel Gallagher you know what I mean but <laughs> I'm not sure there's many <laughs> they're both quite short I think yeah. that's about it um, do you feel how do you feel then when you're dealing with big political figures because you can't be deferential to them but you must still be aware if you're dealing with Cameron or May or, or Corbyn you're dealing with people who will be studied in history who are now constitutionally Significant, they're powerful people. Do you ever struggle to remain professional? Um, not really. I remember once I got in. <laughs> so the, the, the tradition is that prime ministers invite people, invite the journalists round down the street for drinks twice a year, one in the summer and one at Christmas. And I remember the first time I got invited, uh, the invitation hadn't come through to me until about twenty minutes before the event. So everyone else is going. So everyone else is going, and I. So I went, and I had this like bag of potatoes with me because I was. I'd been to the shop. Leave it at the office, mate. And I had to bring it with me in this bag and bring it just down the street. And I was standing there, and I didn't know anyone in the lobby at this point. And it was all these people. And Cameron walked in and just walked up to me. And, I, and my first thought was, I could punch you right now because there was no security there. And I thought, and I yeah. thought that would be so punk, wouldn't it? I worked this hard in my career to get to Downing Street. In the first five minutes of being there, I just punched David Cameron, right? But I didn't, Matt. 
<laughs> I didn't punch him. <laughs> but a couple of years later, we were there again, and um, do you remember he gave that when he claimed that he was an Aston Villa fan and a West Ham oh, fan? Oh, dear. Of course. And um, it was about the time of the Labour leadership contest, the first one, and Andy Burnham said even if he becomes Labour leader, he wouldn't give up his Everton season ticket. Mm. I promise I noticed he didn't make when he ran to be Manchester mayor, but there we are. And someone said to Cameron, oh, has it ever got involved with, has it ever interrupted you going to see Villa Games being Prime Minister? And I said, oh, yeah, all West Ham. And he just turned and looked at me and was just like, oh, yeah, great, I need you. And he got in the paper as, like, Brilliant. David Cameron, Neil Huffington Post won. So I was quite pleased with that. And then Theresa May had a go at me this year because someone asked her if she was going on holiday. And I said, you're not going to go on any more walking tours and have one of your good ideas again, are you, Prime Minister? And she went, oh, well, maybe I should plan my whole holidays around you then, should I? <laughs> so never let it be said she's not emotional because I managed to wind her up. But so in other words, yes, I act very professionally around the but, leaders. There must be part of you, though, when you, when you go back home after a day like that, potatoes or otherwise, yeah. you think, oh, I've just had banter with the Prime Minister. That's why you do it. Because you want to be able to... T- I want to be able to tell people that story, don't I? Of course. Everyone wants... And this is this was Theresa May's big failing in the election. I went around with her and I saw her interact with people and the difference between her and Cameron. Yeah. Cameron understood that when people meet the Prime Minister, they want to be able to go and say to their mates, I met David Cameron, you never guess what he said, right? Yeah. And whether it's a pat on the back or a shake of the hand or a little joke, yeah. Theresa May never understood that. So she would... I remember really clearly she was at a, a bowls club in Hampshire and someone offered a cup of tea, and she said, oh, don't take milk in my tea. And I went, oh, oh, why not, Prime Minister? And instead of going, making a comment about it, she just sort of didn't say anything. And it was really, and her husband had to step in. And you know when you just like, there's your chance for yeah. that woman to be able to explain, oh, do you know, Theresa May doesn't take milk in her tea, and I know why. <laughs> she didn't give that little anecdote to yeah, that person, yeah, yeah. you know? She never give, gave that to people, and I think that, that's quite telling. That's so important. And what... Good politic, whatever a good politician is, but people who are good with people like that, like Cameron, understand is people will then embellish in the retelling. Exactly. So even if you just say one thing to them, exactly. that's, that's kind of they'll go, oh yeah, I chat to David Cameron, and the more they tell people, actually, they'll add in. And actually, even whether you would support a prime minister or not, meeting the prime minister for most people is quite an exciting well, thing. Well, this is the thing that May didn't understand as well. So someone was get introduced to May, you know, prime minister. This yeah. is uh, Doris Hill, and she runs the uh, the the cafe here at the Bells Club. And then Theresa... So you're meeting the Prime Minister, right? You don't want to start the conversation, so you wait for the Prime Minister to speak first. But then Theresa May waits for the person to speak first. So you have this terrible... And I saw it so many times. This terrible standoff where the Prime Minister is then staring at you unblinkingly, (sighs) and you don't know what to... And the person doesn't know what to do. So instead of Theresa May going, oh, 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 what, and what's, what, you know, how long have you been working here for then? Oh, doesn't the lawn look lovely? Or, you know, what have you come from today? Just get the conversation going. They stare at each other. Oh, that's awkward. And that was, and that was, just sums up a little bit the whole Mabel thing. I mean, it, it really encapsulates her character mm. in that it's not malicious necessarily. No, it's it, just awkward. It's, and it's almost over polite. It's almost maybe, you know, you think the other person should speak first because she's a very polite person, maybe. You but... witness a lot of things, don't you? You witness this sort of breakdown in manners or whatever. You've also put yourself in in harm's way. Yes, mate. In, in, in the service of the oh. public. Yeah. Um, a number of Dennis Skinner. Has, um, well, Dennis Skinner was twice. There's the one I saw that that went viral. Where yeah. So he, he lambasted as effectively being the world's media. Yeah. Which is a. He- I mean, I took that into my next appraisal, asking for a pay rise with that. Like, <laughs> Did it work? No, of course not. <laughs> um, he had a go at me um, after the second Labour leadership election, after the result had been announced when Corbyn won beat Owen Smith and I was just doing some Facebook lives and I went and spoke to him and he just went off on one at me and then when I saw him again I was doing a bit of filming at a Labour Party conference and I thought Dennis is going to have a go at me let's get this on camera so I went over and heard Dennis and he went off on one and started accusing me of just like being he sort of said what's your opinion I said I haven't got an opinion of course you have you're not you're part of this do you let me talk to you how do you know how many council homes were built between 1945 and 1950 200,000 but you don't put that in your Huffington Post do you and of course the crowd came around and started cheering him because it was a, it was Dennis Kidd having to go at a man with a camera crew great yeah. and I put it online and then loads of left wing sites were like watch this clip of this journalist getting a telling off we've covered we've discovered this clip it's like i put it online <laughs> like you haven't like embarrassed me i've done this deliberately so yeah Dennis you... Skinner. <laughs> and then at the conservative party conference a few yeah. years ago where i mean which i you know we've joked yeah about yeah, yeah. 
You got spat at in the face. Yeah. Um, by protesters that presumed you were a conservative. Yeah. So there was a. Pro- they didn't necessarily know who you were. No, there was a protest going on. Because that would have explained it. Yeah. <laughs> it was Nigel Farage. No, there was, pro- there was a protest going on, an anti-austerity protest going on outside the Conservative Party conference. And in Manchester. Was in it? Manchester. Yeah. And the boss said, "Can you go out and just do a bit of reporting of this?" So I went out. Before I went out, the security guard said to me, "Take your pass off. It would just provoke him." And I thought, "Brilliant! What a great story that would be." Oh, honestly, I honestly thought that. Right? I'm an idiot. So I went outside, and I was just filming the protest, and people were coming up to me. And then this guy comes up to me and just, you know, I won't make the sound, but brings it on and just spits in my eyes at point blank range. Point blank range. And I had it on film, right? Oh. I had it on film. And I don't remember the next bit. But I then, I chased him into the crowd and grabbed him. Um, He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then by that point, the police came over and separated us and put us into a corner. And it was me, a reporter called Kate McCann from The Telegraph, and this guy. We then got surrounded by all the protesters who were just hurling abuse at us. The police tried to get this guy. This guy then sort of passed out or claimed to have passed out so all everyone saw was these two people who they thought were Tories because I was in a suit this guy that's passed out and they thought well this this Tory's done this to them so they were baying for our blood they were throwing things at us we had to then get a police escort you know like when you see people being smuggled through under shields we were under the shields and snuggled back into the hotel so this is out in the streets yeah how many people are we talking in front of you baying for blood oh there must have been easily about a hundred that's so scary I mean, it, naively, I thought they weren't doing a thing. But then I remembered having been someone who goes to football a lot with a yeah. crowd. Everyone edges themselves on another one or two percent, a one yeah. or two percent, and then you know it goes from a little push to something being thrown. Then it goes. So I remember thinking that, and I, I remember thinking, right, we need to get out of here now. And even an accident could happen. One person yeah, trips, and that yeah, whole exactly, crowd's on exactly, top of you. Exactly. And someone has already just spat at you. Yeah. So it's not beyond the realms. Yeah. I mean, being spat at's one of the most disgusting things. I mean, it doesn't hurt, but. It was, yeah, it was grim. And then I got so many phone calls after some people. I got Big Vern, for a start. Yeah. Uh, the head of the trade, head of the uh, TUC rang me up to apologise. Um, <clears throat> and then I got loads of abuse. I just got loads. And I still get to this day the picture, because someone took a picture of me, a fellow journalist said, don't wipe this bit off, let's take a picture and tweet it. Yes. Um, and that gets tweeted to me all the time by people. Well, comment. like, haha, you got spat Yeah, on. yeah, and let's spit on him again, and let's attack him again. So every time a, a, there's a Tory conference, I get loads of threats. Of it. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And stuff. Abuse sadly has become almost the political term yeah. of the of the of the era in which we live. Do you think it is worse on left, right, or centre? Well, I covered UKIP for, like I said, for a number of years, and I never. I'm working not just for Daily Express, for the Daily Mirror as well, and Huffington Post, and I never felt intimidated at a UKIP event by anyone. I can honestly say that. Now, but had you been, say, you know, waving a red flag, or identifiably pretending to be left wing yeah. say I don't know um, there was always the hope not hate lot around mm. and I never saw the UKIP supporters reacting to them in a violent manner I can only go on what I've ever seen Yeah, but I've seen the left the new the new left resort to that quicker um, that's that's my personal experience do you have a theory on that? Um, I think perhaps uh, the slight difference would be that I think that because UKIP at the time I was really reporting them were desperate to be seen as a legitimate political party, mm-hmm. they didn't want to give in to the stereotype of let's be thugs. So they were trying their absolute hardest. And sometimes the mask would drop and people would be recorded saying terrible, horrible things. 
with the left, I think because they felt like they'd won by getting Corbyn in, I think that that branch of the left, I hasten to say, I think they felt like we're in charge now, we can do what we want and we can act like this. What happened to the guy? Uh, he claimed that he had an asthma attack and the phlegm just came out of his mouth. So did you try and pursue it legally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I sent him the... So he played not guilty. And then I, the police showed him the video and he changed his plea to guilty after oh, that. And what happened to him? He got fined. He got fined. How um, much do you know? 60 quid. Nothing. I didn't even cash the checks. Honestly. You didn't cash the checks? I didn't cash the checks. Why? Because it wasn't... Because <clears throat> he was a homeless guy, I think. Or we, or we, he was a homeless violin teacher. He was also a chiropractor. It was weird, right? It was really weird. And he claimed he wasn't even part of the protest. He claimed he walked into Manchester that day not knowing there's a protest going on looking for food. It was all nonsense, right? But this was his wonderful... I mean, it was a hell of a backstory that he was trying to spin. But you felt sorry for him? Uh, no? I felt like he got caught up in the moment. Yeah. I don't think he set out that day to do that. No. I felt like he was in a crowd full of people who were chanting, Tory scum, Tory scum, and he... His actions were a consequence of that. And I said that to Francis O'Grady, the head of the TUC, when she called me. I said, I do not for a second think that everyone on that march, I'm not holding anyone else on that march responsible for what he did. He made that decision. But when dialogue and language is used in this way, it pushes people to think certain things are okay. Yeah. And I just said, I just hope we can just... I mean, it didn't make a blind bit of difference <laughs> to anyone, but, you know, that was my little two pennies worth. Well, enough people were horrified by it, I think. Um because it's revolting. Did he apologise to you? Well, I grabbed him and, yeah. But at, at court? I didn't go to the court or anything no. like that. I didn't, I didn't do anything like that. But then he did apologise quite quick, as you say, when, when you got him in the crowd. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then yeah, so he... He realised what he'd done and then he tried to get out of it by pretending to faint and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, this is not Martin Bell getting shot in his white suit, so I don't <laughs> want people to feel too too sorry for me. I don't, I don't wake up in cold sweats. Do you know what I mean? stand as an independent exactly, against some corrupt Exactly, but it was... But it was it, it was just it was just a weird it was just a weird yeah it was a weird afternoon it was just revolting really to watch I didn't know you then yeah um, but it just I think most people seeing that just felt sorry for you no 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 most people I think I think some people did some people thought uh, and what was interesting actually I'll do also this is that when because my adrenaline was really pumping I can imagine and when the crowd had surrounded us I said look I'm a journalist oh well you deserve it then that was what really wound me up you were a journalist. Oh, you deserve it. Like, I'm not a Tory. Not the old, I would have deserved it anyway, but you're a journalist. <laughs> you deserve it. And I said to them, but I don't even... I said, I don't even work for the mail or anyone that you hate. I work for Huffington Post, right? You know, we're generally seen as being... Liberal. Giving, liberal and giving a fair report. Corbyn gave us a big, long interview that Christmas because he recognised that we were one of the first outlets to take his leadership candidacy seriously. Yeah. We did. Paul Wall, my boss, did a lot of stuff on it. Um, so I sort of said that, and they and that didn't make. A, I don't know why I thought they'd go. Oh God! Oh, oh, sorry, old chap. <laughs> but they didn't make a difference, and that really wound me up. That it was like you were a journalist. Well, you deserve it. And I was like, Do you know what, mate? Jog on. It must have been very scary. Um, Huffington Post. We touched on this earlier about attitudes towards digital media. Yeah. You've got your established print press, which is, is effectively dying out, and a lot of them yeah. have online platforms. And then there's Huffington Post now, which is for want of a better phrase, a legitimate journalistic outlet. Then you've got the rise of new media, whatever you would call that. So things like The Canary, Squawk Box, Evolve, Guido. And they're obviously very different. I'm not saying that all those sites are the same. They're very different in their yeah. in their characteristics and their intentions and the, the, the things they put on there. But perhaps more opinion-led digital content. Do you think that's a good thing for journalism or, or a bad thing? I think any kind of plurality... Priority on the word is a good thing, and I've got no problem with competition. Yeah. Um, and I think actually, and I don't know whether this is just my personal experience. I felt like, um, at the height of the Corbyn coup, I used to see a lot of people on Facebook sharing articles from those websites. I feel like people now are realizing that a lot of stuff on those websites is not perhaps as neutral and informed as it likes to make out to be and i think people have very quickly realized that actually those websites are not giving you the full story they're claiming to give you the full story and they're not they're giving you a very very hyper partisan version of a story and i think that people's trust in traditional outlets the mainstream media is actually coming back a little bit how difficult is it to balance 
the desire to have your articles read and therefore the, the, the temptation to become, for want of a better phrase, clickbait yeah. and journalistic integrity? Uh, it depends how close I am to an appraisal with my boss when we talk about how many hits I've had on my stories from this review. But is that something that gets talked... I mean, it must be measured in... Yeah, there in is places. a balance. I mean, there is a balance. I think the people are very wise now to the, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg said this and you won't believe it, or, you know, and the internet loved it, all that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. I hate that stuff. I hate that stuff. I think, I think people generally do hate it. I think you can do... You can you can you can write articles in certain ways, and you can write certain kinds of articles in certain ways, which you know are going to get more clicks and more people reading them. Yeah. But then I did, and my colleagues, if they listen, this will laugh. I did last summer a really long piece on the impact of Brexit on German trade and then Japanese trade. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you've read them. Now. I don't know. Of course, telling you. of course. Was... But they were like two of the biggest stories I wrote last year in terms of hits. That's people great. were reading them. It was these are not sexy topics, but it was. A, I spent a long time you researching. Made them sexy. I made it sexy, mate. You're about Japanese trade. <laughs> um, so I think that. So that said to me, oh, actually, when you do stuff well and it's put together well, it doesn't need to be clickbaity. But then you also do, you know, look at David Davis falling over after giving a speech. People are going to want to read that. Of course, I mean, two things are happening, aren't they? There is the clickbait phenomenon, but there is also, I think, a desire, probably more so than at any time in my adult life, for depth. And for real detail, there is a desire on behalf of the public to be really informed now mm. in order to know what is going on and to hold people to account. Yeah, I think because there is so much news around, there's so many news outlets, everyone's a journalist now. On Twitter, you're a journalist. If you see something and you tweet it, if you're Ollie Murs and you hear a <laughs> shot going off in Oxford <laughs> and you tweet it, hey, you're a journalist and people read that, right? So there yeah. is. So now, because of that, I think people then... They go back to the established ones and the one that they trust because they go, well, I know this, this person's applied some kind of journalistic filter to it. Um, I always, the analogy that I use with those kind of clickbait things is that, like, the clickbait stuff is like trying to keep a fire going with paper. You've just got to keep, you've got to chuck loads of paper on it to keep the flames alive. Whereas the long reads, they're like the logs on the fire. Yeah. Now, you need them both to get it going. You need the paper to get excited, then the logs, that burns for a long time. And that's how I, that's how I, that's how I try and imagine my uh, <laughs> journalistic life. It's, it's, a, it's a great analogy. It also suggests that in the future you will become an arsonist. Yeah, in the future. <laughs> Do you ever... A, a lot of political journalists at, at some point in their career will be uh, approached and many will cross into becoming a media advisor or indeed an official spokesman for a politician. And Alistair Campbell's done it. Nick Robinson says in his book that he was approached by Ed Miliband to be his... Wow. To, to, ...to help... Have you ever been approached by a political party? And in future, let's say there's a prime minister that you liked that said, Owen, I'd like you to be my official spokesman. Would you do it? If there was a... And this might sound a bit twee, but if it was... If I genuinely felt like the best way for me to give something to this country or this community... Already, just get that string music. Let's rise this ...was up. to do that, then I would do it. I would absolutely do it. Um... But I don't know if I if I ever if that ever would be the best way for me to do something. I don't know if I'd ever be the best person to do that. If that makes sense. Well, you're just being modest. No, not just being modest. But if if say, let's for instance, Theresa May offered you the yeah. job of official spokesman tomorrow, would you take it? I would have to make sure there was a pretty big severance package <laughs> on the contract straight away. No, because at the moment, I feel like the best thing that I can do. That's a god. I sound like a right egotistical. No, it's but interesting. Be, but the best thing that I can do is, is be a journalist, mate. Right? It's hold the government to account in the little tiny way that I can. If that's what I can do, if I can do one little tiny bit of scrutiny that no one else has done, that's the best thing I could do. If in the future, you know, the next sort of you know equivalent of Clement Attlee or Winston Churchill comes along and says, "Owen, I need you to help me write a speech," and I'm going to go, "Well, I think you are going to make this," then yeah, I would, I would consider that an honour. I really would, but I don't. I can't really see those circumstances. I'm going to very politicians' answer, aren't I? I can't really see the circumstances arising where it would be that person needing me. I don't think that I'd ever be top of the like, the top of the list. Well, it's just interesting to think about because as a political journalist, your ambition could lie in a, in a number of areas. Yeah. It, 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 you, really, you've got a, a number of avenues you can go into. You can help politicians from the inside. You can hold them to account from the outside. You can go into broadcast stuff. Mm. I mean, is that something that you would rather do than than online? 
I think that it's all blurred now, isn't it? It's all blurred. Yeah. So, I mean, you came and did a podcast with us the other day, Matt. Thank you very much for that. The uh, Huffington Post Commons People still podcast. Still available to download. The second um, best political podcast out there. Absolutely. The BuzzFeed one is good. Um, so, uh, you, so you, and I, I've done sort of, um, proper sort of TV interviews kind of stuff, people like Jess Phillips. So you get that kind of mixture already in the job that I have. So I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have the job that I have and to work where I work because I get these amazing opportunities. Um, but, but if you look at people who I admire in journalism, someone like Andrew Neil. Now, mm. I know where Andrew Neil's politics are, right? He doesn't try and hide it. But I also know that when he interviews someone he agrees with, he gives them a, just a tough time yes. as a people that he disagrees with. And I really admire that, that he doesn't try to hide anything. Um, James O'Brien, on the other, complete opposite side of the political spectrum, but when he did Newsnight, he was just as tough on the lefties yeah. as he was on the Tories. So I kind of look at those people as kind of people that I... I want to try and emulate, and I think it's healthy to emulate. Is there pressure within the industry now to be more partisan? Um, I don't know if there is. I think that the big change that I've noticed in the industry, so I've been a journalist about 10 years now, which is not that long, but I remember when I joined, had drawn my first paper and we had a big meeting for how to improve stuff, and I said, there's a new thing called Twitter, we should all join it, and I was laughed out of the room. I remember that really, really clearly. So that just shows how much has changed in 10 years now. Was that the Colchester Daily Gazette? It was the Colchester Daily Gazette, yeah. That was back in 2009, I believe. How do you know about this? I'll do my research, oh, Um <clears throat> Yeah, so um, I got sat from there. I'll tell you a story about that. And, um, was that because you hadn't yet passed your shorthand exam? Uh, how do you know? <laughs> I'll do my research, mate. I did. Pa- I did. I hadn't passed it in the six months they gave me, but I passed it. That's right, it took you a while, that. I seem to remember. Yeah. How do you know all this? I'll do my research. Who are you speaking <laughs> The internet. The point that I was trying to make is that there's been a blur now between commentators and journalists. Yes. And a lot of people don't realise that Owen Jones is not a journalist. Owen Jones is a political commentator. You know, there are people who will write things purely because they have a political agenda they want to push. They are not journalists. If you want to be a journalist, don't try and be those people. If you want to be a commentator, be those people, fine. But you have to realise there is a difference. And my slight concern about the future of journalism as it is is that people now, and you've seen this now, people like Ben Bradley, for example, as an MP, write blogs in their 20s, give away all their views and all their opinions, and then you can't really then go back into journalism with that because you've already shown your hand and it's difficult then to earn the trust and that kind of stuff. Do you have any sympathy for him with that? And, and, and similarly, Jared O'Mara. Is there something about being rash online that we judge too harshly? I think, I, I think we're going to enter... We're in, we're in the place now where everyone's got an online history. And I'm sure the stuff that I've said online and, you know, that looking in the cold light of day 10, 15 years on, I'd cringe at. I think the difference is... I, the Ben Bradley stuff, I do feel a bit sorry for him. It, you know, because I think that he... And he actually made a very eloquent case about this on a Facebook video he did, where he said, look, my job now for the Tories is to go out and convince young people to get involved in politics. Well, young people have got a past online, and this week I've had death threats and journalists knocking on my grandparents' doors. How can I say that therefore we should go into politics? But isn't that just nifty political positioning that is distracting from the fact that he's said some dreadful things, purely playing devil's advocate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is a degree of that as well, but I think we need to have a conversation as a society about this exact same thing because we've all got an online... We're all going to have an online past. Every, you could do every politician you could do. What do we want? Are politicians to, to have never done anything else in their lives yeah. except politics? And everything they've thought about from the age of 16 is a nuance and how to be completely bland and neutral. I don't want that for my politicians. I think there's nothing wrong with saying, when I was 20, I thought this, but actually I've grown up and I've matured. And as you said, I'm married with two kids now. And I don't think those things. It, you know, I don't like the same bands that I liked when I was 20, right? <laughs> That's not true. But, you know, there's things that I liked when I was 20 that I don't like now no. because you change. and you. So I think that, that you have to kind of bear that in mind. It's very easy for us journalists to look through an old blog, pull out a line and say, isn't this person terrible? In terms of your role as a journalist shaping, you don't, journalists have a, so many roles and responsibilities. You report what happens, you hold the government to account. To some extent, people still say the media controls so much of what the, the public think. Do you think that was ever true and do you think it's still true now? I think the media is very good at reflecting where the public is going. Whether it controls... I don't know if it controls what it thinks. I mean, look at the coverage that Jeremy Corbyn got in the media and then look at the result of the general election. Yeah. So if that was true, I think that you would have seen Jeremy Corbyn completely wiped out. But he wasn't. So I think that proves that actually the media generally did not... As a, 
the establishment didn't pick up the support there was for Corbyn or what Corbyn was saying in the country. But that could just be that the media is less influential now than it was. Do you think it's had more influence in previous elections? I don't know if it has. I think people have always been pretty good at, at seeing through things. Um, 1945, most of the media was pro-Churchill yeah. and at anyone. Um, you know, the famous somewhat won it headline about 92, again, I think that was just reflecting where people was as opposed to changing people's ideas. I think I give people a bit more credit. Do you think there is... I mean, every side is convinced that the media is biased against yeah. them. Is there overall, do you think, a media bias in Britain? Uh, I think there are, there are more media outlets, traditional media outlets, who are naturally Tory-supporting than Labour-supporting. I don't think that's... I don't think you can really argue against that. And that's why Blair was so keen to paint himself out as not being the normal Labour, a normal Labour leader, as being someone Tory papers could get behind. Yeah. Um, so I think there is there is that. <clears throat> is that because there's more of a market for centre right right journalism and and print, or is it just because Tories are more likely to have the means to set up a, a newspaper? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big reason for it, and that's why when you look at a lot of the 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 hyperpartisan blogs we've talked about, they're on the left, aren't they? There are some on the right. There's Breitbart on the right. There's Guido Fawkes, which I would separate out slightly because I think Guido Fawkes is slightly different. But yeah. um, there's only really Breitbart on the right. And then on the left, you've got a whole load more. And that's because maybe now they feel they've got the the tools to do it, which they didn't have before. Because it's, it's, you know, it's not some big millionaire backer. In terms of fake news as a phrase... yeah. Do you accept it as a phenomenon? Is it just a label for something that's always existed? And how does traditional or proper journalism combat it? Fake news, you know, it's good for us because then we can write headlines like, no, Laura Kunzberg is not speaking at the Tory party conference. You yeah. know, you can do the you can do the shoot-down articles, which people yeah. like sharing as well, yeah. because your first friend shares, oh, look, she's been at the Tory party conference, and you go, oh, look at this, she's not. So actually, it's actually helped our business model a little bit because you can do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Fake news has always existed. The, you know, the Lyndon Johnson thing about getting him to deny having sex with the Absolutely. pig. Absolutely. You know, so it's always it's always been there. There's a difference between fake news and badly reported news and news you don't agree with. Fake news is news which is completely made up and not based on any truth. Badly reported or overspun news is slightly different. So I wouldn't call certain websites fake news, but I would say that they don't. They're not very good at reporting. Because there's been, you know, tabloid history is littered with lies Freddy and Star at my hamster, all that Absolutely. kind of stuff. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, it, had a, it stood on a proud history of almost deliberately absurdist yeah, nonsense. The, the Hitler diaries, all that kind of stuff. There's always <laughs> been fake news. There's always been fake news around. Yeah. So I don't think it's... And I, again, I think people are getting wise to it. Maybe I'm being a bit naive, but I think people are getting wise, wiser to it now. I hope they are. Owen, this has flown by. I feel like it's been really boring. What it's been, I've been engrossed. Have you? Yes, and I, I, hope, I, hope the know... listener, I hope the listener has as well. <laughs> There's more than one. I Is hope. There? Well, I'll listen back to this. At the very <laughs> least, I'll have listened twice. Um, it's been a real pleasure. No Do you often get asked about the role of a journalist? Not really. It just seems <laughs> odd that no one. It was only. It was only sort of during this actually. I thought I never hear journalists asked about the no, lobby. Not really. Um, you get. The kind of stuff you get asked is, you know, who's the most famous person you've met? I remember going to a, my old school and being asked who the most famous person I met was, and I said, oh, at the time I was David Cameron, and they didn't look that impressed. <laughs> so then I said, oh, no, sorry, it's um, it's Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin. <laughs> Made it up. And I went, yeah, they're lovely. She is good as gold. He he is taller than you think. I think and they'll they stay together forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's she's diamond. She's like that. And they, so, yeah, I made that up. But uh, your parents must be very proud. Uh, yeah, they're proud of me and all my many sisters that I've got. I've, I've got. Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I don't want to get into some sort of sibling <laughs> rivalry. But it must be cool for them to say, oh, our Owen's a journalist. He, he holds politicians to account. Not when I was working at The Express, I didn't like it. They kept, <laughs> a, they kept a bit quiet about that. I'll tell you that much in Leafy Bishop Stortford. It's, 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 what I have noticed is that it, it, having come from local papers, to get into the lobby was really hard work. Yeah. And I had to put in a lot of hard work. But then once you get to a certain level, and, you know, I'm not I'm not at the level of anyone, really. I'm at the lowest of the low. But 
you find that doors open to you a little bit and you get asked to do things on Sky News and talk about things and do podcasts with people like you. So you do, you suddenly find that like people want to talk to you a bit more and you're sort of like, well, when I was working at the Harwich and Mandatory Standard, mate, where were you then? Where were you then, Matt? Where were you then? What year was that? I'll be able to tell you. Uh, it was 2011. 2011? I no, was... 2012. I was um, doing a show on Talk Sport. I was doing the overnight slot. Oh, were you? <laughs> yeah, I was doing um, midnight till 6am. Oh, yeah. Six hours of chat. Shaka's favourite. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's where I was. Yeah? This has been a real treat. Has it? Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been all right. It's been all right. What a review, Owen. Thank you very much. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Owen Bennett there, Deputy Political Editor of Huffington Post. You can follow Owen on Twitter, at Owen J. Bennett. That's with two N's and two T's. That's at Owen J. Bennett. Two hands and two T's. He's a great journalist, Owen, and good fun as well, and loves it. I love talking to people who enjoy politics. So many people are beaten down or bored or jaded by it. I love the humanity of it. Of course he's going to get a thrill if the Prime Minister talks to him. Perhaps in 20 years, when he's editing an online paper or whatever it is, he, he might have very different views. But of course it's a novelty, especially when you just come from a normal background, then all of a sudden you find yourself catapulted into the middle of this rarefied and powerful world. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, do email any comments, suggestions, feedback to the email address, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Tweet me, at Matt Ford, and again, tweet Owen, at Owen J. Bennett, two N's and two T's. Uh, any thoughts, any feedback. Of course, you can buy Owen's book, Following Farage, and I think the other one was the Brexit Club. Um, you can buy them on Amazon. He's a fantastic writer, and his writing reflects his uh, great personality, which I, it was just such a treat to spend an hour with him, uh, and he was absolutely fantastic. The next show is a live show. Is James Cleverley, the new deputy uh, chairman of the Conservative Party. That will be at the other palace next week. I think tickets for all the political parties have pretty much sold out for the entire year. I think there's a handful left for the last three on the other palace websites. Um, I'm also on tour from March, and I'm doing five nights at the Soho Theatre in April, uh, and you can get tickets for that on the Soho Theatre website. Thank you so much for uh, downloading this. Oh, and this is the thing. If you want to help the show, please subscribe. Get friends and family and anyone you can to subscribe. And please leave a review on iTunes. I've been so late to the party on understanding how podcasts work. Um, but getting people to subscribe and and getting them to leave iTunes reviews, um, positive if you can find it in your heart, of course, uh, really helps other people find it. It helps with the rankings and the ratings on there. So it just helps the show um, survive, really. Um, and if you're listening to this at some point in the future, I always get texts and, and emails and, and tweets from people who've started listening from the beginning, back to some of the shows from 2012, now. So if you're working your way through this in the future, God knows what sort of world you're living in. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for being a part of it. I am loving doing these new weekly shows. I hope you're enjoying listening to them. I'll see you in a week. ta